Welcome to Thinking Sheep, a podcast that probes the riches and complexities of life. Thinking Sheep Podcast. Think as you lead. Think harder as you follow. As you follow. As you follow. Welcome to the Thinking Sheep Podcast, where we talk to experts and everyday people about the three R's of life, race, religion, and relationships. I am your host, Skip Walker. Joining me today is Dr. Dorrance Kennedy. Dr. Kennedy is a sociologist, ordained minister, motivational speaker, and also a author who's here to talk about his new book entitled Wisdom from My Father's Porch, A Guide for Young Black Men. Wisdom from My Father's Porch, A Guide for Young Black Men. Interesting title, timely title. Dr. Kennedy, how are you doing today? Welcome to the Thinking Sheep Podcast. Doing great, Brother Skip. Uh, Appreciate you having me on today. Well, Dr. Kennedy, you wear a lot of hats. Man, you are a sociologist, ordained minister, motivational speaker, now an author. Uh, tell us a little bit about your background um, and share your journey with us. Well, you know, I've had an interesting journey. Uh, I was born in Denver, and when I was about five years old, my family moved to New Orleans. And uh, growing up in New Orleans was a great experience, you know, as a city with a lot of rich heritage and culture. Which, uh, when I became a, a teenager, you know, New Orleans developed a major crime problem. So, there in the 1990s, uh, New Orleans was pretty much the murder capital of the United States. Uh, it was very common to, you know, five or six, five or six people getting shot and killed a day in the 1990s. So, grew up in that kind of environment. Uh, now, I went to a Catholic high school in New Orleans named Jesuit. And when I was about 13 years old, I became aware of uh, Reverend Jesse Jackson was running for president, which was big news uh, back then. So learning about him and then I started to get into the civil rights movement and the movement to end slavery and all that kind of stuff. Uh, After I left Jesuit, I went to college in Virginia at Hampton University, which is the alma mater of Booker T. Washington. Uh, did a year in law school, Texas Southern University in Houston, and decided that the law was not for me, and then moved back to New Orleans, where uh, Southern University had a master program in social work that I started to enter. So I was always the kind of person that was kind of socially conscious, and I used to have a lot of conversations with my peers and people that were older than me just about the conditions of the neighborhood and community and society. Uh, so all those experiences kind of led me into the uh, profession of social work. Right. So it sounds like you knew you would be doing something uh, that would help people. And uh, you just had to figure out what that something uh, was going to be, which is which is quite courageous. So tell me about law school. Why didn't law school work out for you? Well, I probably had some misconceptions about what the law was all about. So, of course, we all have those images in our mind of uh, being an advocate for justice in a courtroom. But 
But as you know, as a lawyer, you probably only spend like maybe 10 percent of your your time actually arguing cases in the courtroom. So when I went to law school, it was just a different experience than than I was anticipating and just a whole new system of thought that you had to try to adopt to. Uh, that was that was a little bit different from what I was expecting. But but, you know, I was attracted to the law in some sense because uh, some of my heroes like Nelson Mandela and some of the political figures of that time, you know, were all lawyers. Uh, so that was partly of what attracted me to it. But it wasn't quite what I was expecting to be once I got into it. Yeah, but that was courageous, though, you know, to start that journey. And then realizes not for you and having the courage to go another direction. I think too many times people choose professions based on the prestige of it. Um, if it's lucrative or not, uh, does it impress others? You know, those superficial things. But sounds like you knew you would be helping people. You just had to figure out in what capacity and if you could find some integrity and some some heart and integrity and honesty in what you were doing. So that was that's that's admirable. So later on, you become a social worker and you decide to write this book that's out now. It's entitled Wisdom from My Father's Porch, A Guide for Young Black Men. Every author has an audience in mind. So tell us, who are you writing to in this book and what do you want your audience to understand? Well, um, I was inspired to write the book uh, based on some interactions and conversations I had with my father. Uh, my father and I were uh, pretty close. He died uh, in 2004 from cancer. So it was kind of inspired by conversations and dialogues I had with him. And other men in my life, my uncle, my my grandfather and other black men uh, that I interacted with. And uh, I was kind of inspired to write about it as well, because in the last several years, I've had several black male colleagues who have died prematurely, been killed and things of that nature. And, of course, the whole uh, national situation we have going on with uh, Black Lives Matter and the and the toxic interactions between black men and the police. Uh, so obviously, as a social worker, I, I, I did some time as a social worker in the public school system in Louisiana, Missouri and Illinois. So I would deal with a lot of young men, a lot of black boys. Uh, also, you know, after I got my social work degree, I, I entered the ministry. So, of course, experiences I had uh, in the church serving as director of men's ministry and assistant pastor and all those kind of things uh, all inspired me to write this book. Because I think sometimes uh, black males and black men are going through challenges and Sometimes we're not really reaching out for support and we're just trying to deal with these issues uh, on our own. So that kind of inspired me to write the book. And, and the book is addressed to uh, young black men and, and folks that work with young black men. So that might be 
parents, teachers, coaches, folks in the church and colleges. So the audience is young black men and all those who love and interact with them on some level. Yes. Well, in the introduction of your book, the first statement that caught my eye, I mean, it just jumped off the page, leaped off the page. Um, You write that black men have been perceived as a threat to American society, unwanted and unloved, despised and disrespected, feared and hated, and yet envied and imitated. To some, that might seem like a strange paradox. So can you unpack that statement for us a little bit? Yes. Well, I I think that even before uh, America officially began, you know, with the whole transatlantic slave trade, the slave experience, uh, black men have always been considered a threat to America and to the powers that be. So I think there's been all these strategies and devices over time that have been implemented to kind of keep black men in check, under control, make sure that they don't uh, accumulate power to threaten the system. So I think uh, a lot of black men have had experience where in, in some cases we're almost guilty until proven innocent. So we're looked upon with suspension, suspicion uh considered criminals whether we are or not like the trayvon martin situation but on the other hand you know the the style and the soul of black men have impacted the world so when you think about muhammad ali and the way he changed uh boxing forever just because of his 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 style and brilliance as a fighter or you think about the leadership and the oratory of martin luther king or you think about the basketball artistry of Michael Jordan or or the entertainment of uh, Michael Jackson, you know, the moral authority of Nelson Mandela. Uh, so when you think about the style and the soul and the substance of black men, the, the dress and the dance and the language, uh, there was a book written some years ago by a man named Ellis Coles in which he described black men as being the envy of the world. So in some sense, you know, ostracized, considered a threat, under suspicion, uh, considered criminals, whether they are or not. But the style and substance and flavor of black men, you know, has had uh, a national and international impact all over the world. Yes. Great points. Well, in your book, you insist that for black people, racism is not the only issue or only struggle that we have. Um, You believe that blacks must all struggle against their lower selves. Now, what do you mean by lower selves? Uh, Talk to us a little bit about that. Well, I think, uh, you know, for those of us that are Christian, spiritual, in the ministry, uh, as, as the Bible talks about in Romans 7, how... Paul said that in my flesh uh, dwells no good thing. And he talks about how the evil that I should do, I don't do. But the evil that I should not do, that's what I end up doing. Mm. So I think the irony for some of us, even as we march and and protest uh, historically against slavery, segregation, and now police brutality, 
there are some in our community that are very passionate about racism and injustice and oppression. But if we fight for more freedom in America and the world, but then lose our spiritual freedom, you know, if we, as, as the Bible says, you know, what is it profit if you gain the whole world and lose your soul? Yes. So uh, I think it, this time period is interesting uh, in the sense that in the past, like during the civil rights movement and, and even the abolitionist movement, a lot of the leadership of those movements came and emanated out of the black church and the ministers were very involved. But I think what we're seeing currently with Black Lives Matter, uh, some of the young people that have stepped up to the forefront of leadership are disconnected and alienated from the church, from organized religion, uh, which makes this uh, a different situation and a different vibe than it has been in the past where the ministers and the church were the vanguard of the movement. Uh, so I think today the church and ministers are still participating, but the young people that are in the forefront do not always identify with the church. They, they've been ostracized from the church and they may not always hold the traditional biblical worldview that we're accustomed to. Excellent points. So why, in your opinion, are so many young people feeling ostracized? Historically, the black church has been an agent of social change. And as you said, many of the black leaders were rooted in the church. Um, so why the disconnect now? What went wrong, in your opinion? Well, I think uh, since the death of Dr. King, I think that uh, the theology of the church in general and specifically the African-American church maybe has changed to a certain degree. Uh, where maybe some of the prominent ministers now have gotten more into prosperity gospel and prosperity teaching. Uh, so I think the word of God does talk about prosperity, but that prosperity is not dealing, not only dealing with economic wealth, and it's not only dealing with the economic well-being of the individual or family. We also have to be concerned about community empowerment of uh, the status of the poor and the oppressed and the disenfranchised. So I think uh, in recent times, there's been a shift away from the church's traditional role of being advocates for the poor. And now we've gone more into being advocates for individual and family economic well-being and things of their that nature. So I think there's been a shift in our theology. And also I think with some of our younger people, uh, maybe church leadership is seen as out of touch and not sensitive to maybe members of the LGBTQ community and things like that. So I think there's a combination of, of factors that have caused the shift. Well, with all that being said, can the black church rebound, reconnect, and even reclaim what's been lost with the youth and with young leaders today? 
I do. I just think uh, as in past times where the church seems to have lost its influence, you know, some people have described the church almost as a sleeping giant. So I do believe that some of the things that we've been seeing in our streets and on the TV has kind of uh, made some of the church leadership take take pause and really reflect to see to see how they can re-engage uh, better with the community and maybe better with those that uh, are disconnected or ostracized or alienated from the traditional church uh, structure. Because, but it's interesting in America right now. You know, I, I think I was reading something and said uh, there's there's a growing population of people called the nuns, you know, those that don't identify with any organized religion. And then the duns, maybe they they had a church experience, but they were hurt for some reason, and now they've been alienated. But I think it just causes the church, it causes us to just be more intentional and creative and maybe thinking out the box uh, in a way that we can bring back some of the people that have felt disconnected uh, from the church house. Yes, well, I guess we have to always be optimistic. Well, in chapter two of your book, you drop a lot of wisdom on what you call family codes. Actually, more like codes and ethics. Respect your elders. Take care of moms. Remember your pops. Don't be a player. Talk to us a little bit about the importance of of some of those codes and ethics in the black community? Yes. Um, so once again, I think it's on some level a little ironic that the current social movement is called Black Lives Matter. And of course, it's in the context of police brutality. But as I've said in other uh, arenas, in order for black lives to matter, we have to con be more concerned about black relationships and relationships in general uh so once again you know we have to we have to regain our respect for our elders there was a time when uh, someone of a certain age was considered you know a person of honor in our community so i think sometimes when people get older now there's a tendency to push them aside as if their perspectives and their contribution is no longer value valuable but as the scripture says there's nothing new under the sun and and perhaps our elders you know through their lived experience have some valuable le uh, lessons to teach us uh so i think we have to regain that respect for our elders uh because uh if we're going to get a sense of the struggle and the way forward, we have to be clear about the path of, of where we've been. So just like when Joshua led the children of Israel uh, into the promised land uh, across Jordan and in the promised land of Canaan, he instructed uh, his people to take 12 stones and make a monument so that the people coming behind them would, would know of the story of how they made it to the promised land. So by talking to our elders and hearing the stories of how we've overcome different 
obstacles. I just think that's very, very valuable and very instructive. So in my life as a college professor, you know, I always was a bit troubled when uh, President Obama was in the White House and I would ask my college students just basic questions about President Obama, like where was he born and where was his mother and father from and uh, where did he have his first job? They didn't know basic information about President Obama. And this was just this is a contemporary figure. So respect for our elders is is is, is very uh, important. And I think another interesting thing in our community is that we still have people among us. My my mother's 80 years old. We still have family members among us that live through Jim Crow and segregation. But in the next 30 years, you know, many of the people that live through segregation are going to pass off the scene. So we really need to take advantage of that living history that's among us right now. Uh, we, we have to re-embrace, you know, the importance of our, our mothers in, in the black community. Mother's Day has always been a holy day. You know, most of us have special relationships with our mother. And uh, we have to regain that. And then when it comes to our fathers, you know, there are many of us who have had challenges in our relationships with our fathers, even maybe our fathers weren't present or some kind of issue. But I know a lot of men uh, that are underappreciated and they're trying to do the best they can uh, throughout some difficult odds. And we have to reaffirm the value of men that are getting up and going to work every day and trying to do uh, the right thing. So I really think we just have to go back to the foundation of a family and respecting our elders and even imitate Jesus because even when he was suffering on the cross, he was cognizant and aware enough to, to speak to John from the cross, his beloved disciple and make sure that, his mother was taken care of. So uh, we we have to make sure that our families are taken care of, loved and protected. Very well said. Well, in your book, you also talk about character, the importance of character. And now, whether you're a pastor, community leader, politician um, in the age of technology and social media, there are no more secrets. Um, anybody can investigate anybody now. And um, being that as human beings, we're not perfect. Um, if you have a little dirt on you here and there, chances are someone will find it. Um, and so character means something very different today than it did, say, 20, 30 years ago when people actually had something called a private life. Um, so talk to us about character. Yes. Uh, well, as a wise person said, you know, character uh, in some sense is who we are when we think that nobody's looking, which, of course, somebody's always watching us and what we're doing. But uh, I think sometimes in our community, we look for the charisma more than the character. Yes. So uh, I remember, you know, during this last presidential election of President Trump, there were many people in the church that compared the president to 
King Saul. So, you know, the people of God, you know, they saw that other nations around them wanted a king and God said, no, I'm your king. I'm your king. I'm your leader. You don't have to be like them. But they kept on crying out for a king. So he gave them Saul and Saul was a very tall, impressive looking, commanding figure. But the problem was his heart was not with the Lord. So I think sometimes we're looking for the charisma and we're looking for the physical stature and the commanding manner and voice and things like that. But we have to look more for the the character. So uh, Moses was not a good speaker. You know, he was a murderer. He had some some challenges, but God had built his character that made him into uh, a good leader. So we can, uh, everything that shines, everything that shines is not gold. You know, all that glitters is not gold. So the character is what we have to look for most of all. So I've learned that in our personal lives and, and careers, sometimes your talent can get you into certain places, but your character is what's going to keep you there. Because there there's some people that rise to certain degrees of prominence and we see it all the time on the news and then they get there and they do something that's very reckless and doesn't make sense. And it's it's a sign that there's something amiss with their character. So I think uh, if we if we have the sense as I was raised as a child that we're always being watched, people are watching us, God is watching what we're doing. Uh, it would help us, you know, be self-critical about ourselves and what we're doing. And it would just give us a sense of humility, because I think a lot of times when people and leaders fall, it's because they've lost some sense of humility and they start to feel that the ordinary rules don't apply to them. So I think that character and that humility and being transparent, have the ability to apologize to people when we're wrong. Uh, I think that would serve us well in leadership and in other aspects of our lives in the community. Yes. You know, we have these little things that we carry around called cell phones and um, we can document, we can take pictures, we can record. Um, people are always watching now for sure. Well, there is an old saying that leaders are readers and every great reader that I've ever read about or studied loved books. They love to read. They love to expand the mind through reading. Well, in this age of technology where attention spans are becoming shorter and shorter by the minute or by the second, um, talk to us about the importance of reading, because in the book you speak of your love for reading and you talk about how important it is to read. Well, that is a subject that is near and dear to my heart. You know, I've I've said about myself, you know, I'm a bibliophile, which is a lover and collector of books. Uh, now, that does create some challenges because uh, if you're like me and you like to read and collect books, you know, that does create some storage space uh, issues in your environment. But there's just so many leaders uh, all over the world, from Mahatma Gandhi to Mandela to 
Billy Graham, I, I visited Billy Graham's library in Charlotte and, and they had a bookstore, uh, at his, uh, his, his library and, uh, or, or the, uh, the site that, that they had for him. And I was in the bookstore and I was buying a book at the cash register and I looked up and there was all these bookstores that were, you know, up above us, all these, all these bookshelves. And I, and I said, well, who do those books belong to? And the cashier said, well, that's part of his personal collection. So then he told me that Billy Graham owned a hundred thousand books. So it's it's just imagining uh, amazing to me that leaders of all persuasions, you know, seem to have had a love for knowledge, a love for learning, a love for reading. Uh, and reading is important because, you know, by reading about different extraordinary uh, figures of today and in the past, you know, it's like taking a vacation while you're still at your house. And I think it can increase, you know, your awareness and your consciousness about your environment and your potential and who you could possibly become. So I just think reading is, is, is so valuable, but it's a little disturbing the trend in our society because, you know, we've had newspapers that have gone out of business and and magazines and uh you know, bookstores like Books a Million and Lifeway and Family Christian have all gone out of business. So people just don't read the way they used to. Uh, they rely on the Internet more for their their information. But I think there's nothing like sitting down with a book and reading it critically and really challenging yourself to grasp uh, what the author is trying to convey. But I think we need to be careful in society because today, you know, we're more audio learners and it seems like we're more interested in getting sound bites of information than really digesting, you know, serious intellectual material. Well, how do you think we get that back? Because as an educator myself, I've seen over the past five, six years, um, not only is there not a love for reading, but um, there's not a love for writing, expressing yourself through writing. So what do we need to do to get that back? Um, not just for the black community, but just for our youth, period. Well, it's it's going to be tough. You know, I just think we have to start uh, start at a young age. I know that when I was uh, growing up as a child, you know, my my mother, my father insisted, you know, that I read on a regular basis. They would take me to the library. I would have to do book reports on things that I read. But I just think that this proliferation of technology. So when you're talking about writing skills, you know, how how much we communicate now by texting and email and, you know, in those formats, sometimes, you know, we're not writing in complete sentences and things like that. So I think it is challenging with all the proliferation of technology. But I just think we have to try to start um, when we're young to reinforce to to our children the the value of being able to engage in critical thought and intellectual exploration 
but it's 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 a scary trend to me it's just like a musician you know when i was growing up you know i wanted to buy the whole album or the whole cd of the musician because i figured that 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 artist that musician had a concept that he was trying to convey throughout all those songs on that cd or album but now people don't even buy whole cds you know they do itunes and itunes and pick this song and that song but uh, i just think we have to start young and just try to reinforce just how important uh critical thinking and intellectual investigation is because some of us you know that watch the news and follow what's going on in the world you know we're getting our information from very limited news sources we're not listening to people that we don't agree with so we find ourselves almost in an echo chamber we're only listening to people that we agree with and we're quick to dismiss information that we don't agree with uh so it's it's something that we definitely should uh pay attention to but it seems like almost in today's society uh somebody told me you know you have the right to choose your own opinion but you don't have the right to choose your own facts mm. and it seemed it seemed like in the past you know there were certain things that people agreed on they be they believed that two plus two was four they believed that red light means stop but nowadays when you're trying to have dialogue with people it seems like we're losing even common ground about things that we used to agree about because everybody's picking their own news source or they haven't taken the time to do their own research. Yes, I agree. Well, um, community, community. In your book, you talk about the importance of community and mentoring in the black community. What must black America do to revive her sense of community and raise strong leaders who can mentor with honesty and integrity? Well, I think uh, mentoring is a heavy question. So I think, you know, uh, those who, of us who have achieved a certain amount of success have to make ourselves available to be mentors. Uh, I remember when the talk show uh, host Michael Bays in a couple years put a call out for black male mentors and he was frustrated at the lukewarm response that he got. So in order for mentoring to be made made real, you know, we have to make ourselves available and, you know, it's not like mentoring always has to take a tremendous amount of our time. You know, if we can just be intentional about uh, donating our time to mentoring, uh, you know, it, it's not something that has to take a whole lot of time. So we have to make ourselves available. Another thing I found is that the mentor has to be secure in themselves because I've seen some situations where the mentor uh, is insecure, may become uh, jealous of the mentee and consider the mentee to be a threat. 
So I think the mentor has to be in a place in their life where they're secure enough to to pour wisdom and life lessons into the mentee. And the mentor also has to be uh, secure enough to be transparent about life lessons and mistakes that they've made. But also the flip side is that uh, mentees have to be teachable. So there are some people that are always talking about mentoring. I need a mentor, but they're not necessarily teachable and they don't want any constructive criticism. They don't want anybody to correct them. Uh, so I, I just think it's a reciprocal relationship. And then, of course, there is something called reverse mentoring where younger people have something to teach those that are older. So we see situations where we have people that are older that have been in positions for a long time and they're used to doing things a certain way. And sometimes the younger people who have very good intention and ideas may approach those that are older to try to share some of those ideas. And, and sometimes their ideas are not received. So I think we have to be accustomed to the traditional mentoring model of the elder mentoring the youth. But those of us that are older also have to be willing to receive the creativity and the energy of the youth. So I just think it has to be a reciprocal relationship between the generations. Uh, that's why the Bible, we have the old and new Testament. So as a, as a wise person said, God is older than any of us, but he's still fresh in every generation. So I just think the generations and the different age groups have something valuable to teach each other. Absolutely. Well, entrepreneurship, that is a word and that is a concept that you believe should be taught in the black community. You feel like that's very important. Um, talk to us about why young black men or just people in the black community in general need to embrace entrepreneurship? Yes. Well, it's very important. You know, I, when I was a undergraduate uh, student at Hampton University in Virginia, I was a business major. And even though I was a business major, they was, there was little that was taught about being an entrepreneur, starting your own business. So at that time we were kind of being, directed and taught and trained to compete for jobs in corporate America. But uh, I think that for, for in particular in the African-American community, you know, 95% of our dollars are spent outside of our community. So when you compare the black community with some other ethnic groups, like for example, the Jewish community or the Korean community, there are other ethnic groups that circulate their dollars several times before it leaves out of their community. But in black America, sometimes it just seems like we make a do dollar and automatically spend it outside of our community. So I just think we have to have the mindset and teach our children uh, not just to look for a job, but to consider uh, entrepreneurship, building institutions, 
with the turmoil in the world, you know, it's wise for all of us to have multiple streams of cash flow and income. And sometimes we have experiences on, on jobs where we're underpaid or there's office politics or there's barriers to promotion, which may be a sign from the universe that maybe we need to branch out and do something different on our own. But I am a strong believer, even if you're not a full-time entrepreneur, all of us should be looking to do something where we can create multiple streams of income because just the uncertainty of the world and the economy. And I think too often in the black community, we have been consumers instead of producers but i think history has shown shown that people that have the mindset of production and creation tend to do much better than those that are only looking for a job because as a wise person said uh, j-o-b sometimes stands for just over broke <laughs> so we have to try to create multiple streams of income even if we can't do it full time Yes. Wow. J-O-B just over broke. That's interesting. <laughs> interesting. But um, so really what you're talking about is um, a different mental approach to life and living or making a living um, to be an entrepreneur. Um, you have to have a different mindset, don't you think? Well, I, I I remember there's a famous uh, there's a famous figure in the African American community named uh, his name is is leaving me right now. He was called the Black A. G. Gaston, and A. G. Gaston had several businesses, and he kind of financed the civil rights movement back in the day. And one thing he said, he said, we can't. Uh, beg the man and fight the man at the same time yes. so i think uh in our community sometimes we're always protesting and demonstrating for people to treat us fair and to let us in but we don't have the same energy and fervor when it comes to building our own institutions so i even think after the civil rights movement in the rush to integrate into broader society, we let some of our institutions, the banks, the insurance companies, the black colleges and other things uh, fall apart. You know, so I think if we had a more of a mindset of, of entrepreneurship and ownership, if you're an entrepreneur, you know, you have a certain freedom that other people don't have because you're the boss and you're calling the shots. So I just think we have to get out of the mindset of begging and waiting people to do something for us. So for example, I'm a native of new Orleans and I remember in the aftermath of hurricane Katrina, where there was a lot of concern about the way that, uh, the Red Cross and FEMA and the federal government screwed up. But what I said to myself, I said, you know, there should be some kind of means and mechanisms in our community that when our people are in trouble, 
we have a way of going into action with not, without always waiting on the government to come rescue us. So I just think we, we have to have the same fervor as we do for beating down the doors and asking people to treat us fairly and let us in. We have to have that same intensity when it comes to building institutions. Uh, you know, a wise man, as the Bible said, leaves an inheritance for his children. And uh, we have to be about not just holding jobs, but building institutions. Very well said. Well, you know, you're raising two beautiful African-American children. Um, if you had to choose just one chapter, one chapter that you needed your children to grasp right now, what chapter would that be and why? I uh, appreciate the question. Uh, that would be chapter number seven. Uh, which is entitled Mentality. So in that particular uh, chapter, I talk about the importance of believing in oneself, uh, believing in God and believing in oneself. So uh, our faith is the most important quality that we can have. And then in order to affect society, be a leader, be a person of influence, uh, you have to believe in yourself if you expect others to believe in you. And uh, what I try to teach my children, it's not we we have to remember not only who we are, but whose we are. So I try to keep them grounded in their faith and in our history as a people. Uh, and as the scripture says, you know, in Hebrews, we're surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses and and as African-Americans, we also have a great crowd of ancestors that are pulling for us and giving us guidance uh, to go where we need to in the future. So I talk about faith and believing in yourself. I talk about enthusiasm. Like Ralph Waldo Emerson once said, nothing great can ever be achieved without enthusiasm. Even in the sports world, the team that has the passion and, and has the fire oftentimes wins the game. So that's very important in life as well. Uh, I also try to teach my children the importance of being a diverse and well-rounded person, being well-read and well-traveled and being able to uh, connect and interact with a, a wide variety of people. Uh, I talk about the the importance of having the humility to apologize and uh, control your anger. Uh, I, I also say in the, in the chapter that uh, sometimes life teaches us different things and uh, it's, it, I call it learning the lesson. So sometimes life presents us with a situation for us to learn the lesson. And then if we don't learn that lesson, uh, the situation will repeat itself later on in a different kind of context. Uh, also in the chapter, I talk about being patient, you know, holding on to your dreams. And then probably one of my favorite uh, things in the book, I have a little piece talk that's talking about don't miss the layup. And I talk about how when I was uh, much younger, I used to play basketball in junior high and I was short and I was quick. So I was able to dribble past the defense and get all the way down the court. 
And then I would be by myself, an open shot. All I had to do was make the layup, and I would miss the layup. So uh, I talk about in the book about the importance of not missing the layup. You know, uh, when you're when you're going for a job or you're trying to get something done, you have to be able to close the deal. So I talk about that as well. So I think that chapter seven about mentality and mental attitudes is probably uh, the the chapter that I really try to focus on with my children. Excellent. So tell us, how can we find your book and um, how can we get in touch with you? Uh, yes, uh, Brother Walker, appreciate that question. Uh, so uh, in order to find my book, you can uh, go straight to my publisher, which is African-American Images. So that's AfricanAmericanImages.com. Uh, their customer service number is 708-672-4909, extension 735. And also to get in contact with me personally, uh, my personal email address is www.eyp, uh, eypnc.org. So that's E like an Ed, Y like in you, P like in Paul, NC like North Carolina.org. Uh, and you can also email me at Dorrance Kennedy, D-O-R-R-A-N-C-E, Kennedy, at gmail.com. And social media? Yes, I'm on all those venues, uh, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram as well, as well as LinkedIn. Well, Dr. Kennedy, we thank you for coming on the Thinking Sheet podcast today. And again, for the listeners out there, you have been listening to the wisdom of Dr. Dorrance Kennedy. Uh, talking about his new book, Wisdom from My Father's Porch, a guide for young black men. Wisdom from My Father's Porch, a guide for young black men. Join us in a few weeks for another exciting guest. You can follow us at Thinking Sheep One on Instagram. That's Thinking Sheep Number One. You can also follow us on Facebook at Thinking Sheep. And you can follow me personally on Facebook at Skip Walker Music. That's Skip Walker Music. And of course, for the Thinking Sheep Podcast, I am your host, Skip Walker. Until next time, keep on thinking.